the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back listeners. We're continuing with Dr. Riley, a discussion on vertebral body tethering and spinal scoliosis management. What we've always been looking for is something in the line of a fusion in the sense that it can help us to stop the curve from progressing and it can help us make the curve straighter, but we don't want to stop the motion. And we talk a lot about motion, but really for me, it's not so much how far can you bend. It's simply the fact that each segment of the spine remains independent and can accept stress independently so that stress can be transferred over 20 individual segments rather than being focused on the segments above and below a fusion. So we've always been looking for this. Uh, the first reasonable results have been seen with this newer procedure called vertebral body tethering. And it's called tethering for a couple of reasons. One is we're using a rope rather than a rod to secure one segment of the spine to another. So that does a couple of things. It gives us a tensioning force by which we can straighten the spine out. But what it also does is we place it on the spine unilaterally. So we put it only on the convex side of the curve, which is the longer side of the curve. And when I say longer, what I mean is the vertebral bodies on the convexity of the curve are actually taller on the convex side. Uh, the discs are broader on that side. And so while we're tensioning that rope during surgery on the convex side of the spine and making it straighter, what we are also doing is placing a compression force on the growth plates of that side of the spine and, you know, nerding out again, uh, compression is part of what we call the Hoyter-Volkman law and compression stops growth at a growth plate. So we stop the growth on the long side of the spine. We allow growth to continue on the short side of the spine, and over time, that curve continues to correct. So uh, there are a litany of problems that come up. So just like with Har Harrington rods, where we can make people too straight, with vertebral body tethering, we maintain motion, we maintain stress transfer. And there was recently a wonderful article in JBJS by Josh Pahis, spelled uh, P-A-H-Y-S, out of the uh, Shriners Hospital in Philadelphia that shows we actually do maintain motion, so it's wonderful. But just like with Harrington rods where we could make things too straight, sometimes the growth modulation of VBT can work too well, and we can actually not only straighten the spine, but cause it to overcorrect and become scoliosis in the opposite direction. So of course, in the first few years, we had to learn a lot about the timing of the surgery, the size of curves that were appropriate and the flexibility of the curves that were appropriate. So the whole point of it was number one, thank heavens for fusion. It bailed us out of some of the worst, most disabling and life-shortening scoliosis that we see as pediatric orthopedists. But we also have to recognize its limitations. We knew it was not gonna be the best thing we ever came up with. And so again, thank heavens for the genius that came up with vertebral body tethering. We know that it's not perfect. We know it has limitations, 
but it does, it has been shown to maintain motion. And now we're going to need, you know, the next 20 to 40 years to see whether it really does allow us to have fewer revisions later in life compared to fusion. You went over a lot of my points there, but I, I do have a question. So yes. I haven't I haven't assisted one of these surgeries. And I'm trying to visualize. I, I understand the unilateral, meaning that the implants are just on one side of the vertebral body and there's a rope that connects and locks into each one of these implants. How do you correct the deformity? Are you manually pushing the patient or does just the tensioning of that rope actually correct the deformity? So it's a little bit of both. And that's a really good question uh, because there's a lot, unfortunately, of art that comes into this part of the procedure. And it's something that we absolutely have to transition from art into hard numbers that we can use to guide us. But I'll tell you what we do currently. And this is, has developed over the past few years. So the patient is placed on, let's say that it's a convex right curvature. So in the thoracic spine, that curve is coming toward the right rib cage. Somehow I have to provide a force that pushes that spine back over to the left, allows me to get my screws in on the right side, and allows me to provide some compression on the right side. So if it's a right-sided convex curve, then we actually place the patient onto their left side during surgery. And I have developed one of the beds that we have here in my hospital so that the patient's shoulder can rest on the bed and the patient's iliac crest can rest on the bed. And then we secure them to the bed and then there's a void below them on the left side. So just by laying them on that table, the curve with gravity can correct a little bit. And then once I've placed all my screws and my rope is in there, I can push the spine into that void in the table so we can correct the curve even more. And then there's a little device. And so this is all done thoracoscopically, right? So these are like four little 1.5 centimeter incisions. So through one of those incisions, we place a device that looks kind of like a plumbing snake. It threads over the top or cannulates over the tether, the rope. And we can take that snake all the way down to the screw where we're going to tension that rope. So we do it at each level individually. And then we have a little tensioner outside the body through the snake that grabs the rope and allows us to tension that rope. So we use a combination of a force that I apply from the convexity of the curve toward the concavity. There's a derotation that goes along with that because the spine is also rotated. And then there's a tension on the rope that's provided by that tensioning gun that my assistant is using. And so this brings up a, a whole list of problems. You know, how tight do you make it? How do you know when tight is tight enough? Does it vary according to the size of the curve? Does it vary according to how much growth is left? And what I would tell you is the answer to every single one of those questions is yes. We don't have anything close to hard and fast numbers as far as how do we know that we've done it right. So you have to do a lot of these surgeries. You have to see how well you individually can make a curve correct. 
and then how the spine responds after surgery to the growth modulation. So all of those things are ill-defined at this point, and you have to be willing to talk to your patients and say, hey, listen, this is a new surgery. We're learning as we do it. And they really, really have to be on board with the fact that there is a fair amount of art when it comes to correcting that curve. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to share this with our listeners. We don't have the uh, actual images that Dr. Riley had at his talk, but holy moly. I mean, if you look at some of the curves, the pre and post with this technique, it's very impressive. It's, you know, nice and straight. It's just wonderful. Now, I think you said you've done 72 of these and your complication rate was hardly any, uh, which is awesome. But I did want to ask, just back up a little bit, talking about how, you know, correcting the curve. I think you had mentioned at one point that you're not always going to get the patient back to zero and then, well, is it 20 degrees? Is it 15? Where mm -hmm. do we stop? What's acceptable? And, and kind of, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And again, I'm sorry, I will talk forever about this if you let me, because it, it absolutely fascinates me. And we are in absolutely overdrive pursuit, trying to figure out how we can perfect all of this. What you're hoping for again, is to correct the curve enough so that that curve will never progress again. Even when we do fusions, like let's say I'm doing a very typical posterior spinal fusion, the curve is maybe 60 degrees to start. We will never get that curve down to zero. Or if we do, it's luck. We have to be very careful because correcting the curve too much puts the spinal cord at greater risk because of the amount of movement that has to take place. There's a fair amount of rigidity to any curve, especially over 50 degrees. And so all those things play into just how much you can correct that curve. But a reasonable correction, even when I do a posterior spinal fusion where I have a lot of control over that spine, could be going from 60 degrees down to 10 degrees or so. Uh, if you look at that x-ray, you will think it's perfectly straight. It'll look so fantastic. So those are beyond acceptable results. And so with vertebral body tethering, it's different. The cord is not as strong as the rods. You do not have as much control over the spine as you do with the rods. And so what I've found is on average, the curves will improve and by the end of growth, get to the point where they're around 20 degrees or so. And it's more noticeable on an x-ray with VBT because you don't have the rods and as many screws in the way to see what's happening. And so the big question is, is 20 degrees good enough? Because without question, every single one of these tethers is going to break one day. There's just no way that it can withstand the motion and force of a human being forever. So if we look at our natural history studies of scoliosis, once growth has ceased, really any curve below about 35 to 40 degrees, those curves will remain stable forever once the growth has ceased. So our hope is that if we can get these curves below about 30 degrees or so, and we get the patient to the end of growth and that cord ruptures, our hope is that it will follow the natural history of scoliosis and stay stable. The unfortunate thing, of course, is we won't know for another 30 years, whether that's true. I would say, yeah, in our first 70 cases or so, uh, we have had some that are ridiculously straight and look like zeros. We've had some 
that overcorrect just a tiny bit, but so far we haven't had to revise any of those. They, they've stayed put with a small amount of overcorrection. And then there's a decent cohort that's right around 20 to 25 degrees. And so far I've had one patient, it was a curve that was probably a little too big and stiff to begin with. And we tried and the rope failed very early and we converted that young lady to a posterior spinal fusion. And I can tell you her story later if you want. She's an amazing young lady. Uh, but for the most part, yes, it's been successful. I think you do have to be ready and prepared for a curve that is not going to be a zero beautiful curve. It's probably going to be most of the time somewhere between 10 to 25 degrees when it's all said and done. But I try to be really careful and ask these young patients, and most of them are young women. So if I say girls, I apologize. It's just that a lot of them are. But when we talk about it, I say, okay, you're down at 20 degrees. How do you feel? Like, was this worth it? Do you like the shape of your body? Is it functioning the way that you want it to? And amazingly, I've not had a single girl tell me, yeah, I wish it was straighter. Or no, I still feel like it's too stiff. I've just been blown away. They're all so happy with the improvement and with their tiny little scars. And just with that intrinsic sense that they have more normal motion than they would have had with a fusion. So yeah, I think our definition of success is going to be different from fusion because in fusion, it's so fun just to show how darn straight you can get that spine. But really the point is we want a curve that is small enough it has near normal motion and it will never worsen ever again. And I think all that really requires is a curve below a certain threshold. We just have to figure out exactly what that threshold is. So some time and, and further surgeries and outcomes. Yeah. So and just to be clear, that's something I, I really feed almost too much to my patients probably. But I tell them, listen, if you agree, like this is the surgery you want to do, because we present it very fair and balanced. And we, I, I try to make absolutely sure they understand we have no long-term data to know what's going to happen here. And so I tell them, you are the future long-term data. You have to be willing to answer my nagging phone calls every 10 years for the next 30, 40, 50 years when I say, okay, time to come back in for one more x-ray. Because the surgeries we are doing now are the surgeries that will show us later just how well this will pan out over time. I'll be calling you up in about 30 years, Dr. Riley. And we'll oh, I hope so. <laughs> and I, I, uh, the bummer is the technology will outpace the procedure. The technology will be much better in 30 years. But I, I really hope so because nothing would make me happier then in 30 years to write up a paper that shows that these patients are doing really well, and then be able to send that paper to every single one of those patients who had the guts to do this and say, look at this. I mean, it's working. And you guys were the pioneers. I think that would be unbelievably awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Stay tuned for next week when we have more of Dr. Riley's discussion on innovations in pediatric medicine. Listeners, we wanted to make you aware of our second annual orthopedic boot camp. This will be in Charlotte, November the 4th through the 6th. Registration information is on our website, paos.org, and I hope to see you there.